Hello, and welcome to another podcast from the Centre for Medicinal Cannabis. My name is Daniel Couch, I'm the Medical Lead, and today we're going to be talking about what next for medicinal cannabis after COVID-19. So, before the lockdown, we knew that the law changed in 2018, allowing prescriptions, and in November 2019, NICE released guidance uh, uh, recommending the use of a select group of cannabinoid medicines for a very select group of patients. And after all this, we've seen an increase in the number of prescriptions. And since then, there have perhaps been hundreds and maybe even thousands of prescriptions, both in the public and the private sector. And there's no doubt that momentum was building. But then lockdown, this seismic economic event happened, which undoubtedly has affected this industry as every other industry on the planet. For cannabis in particular, it's thrown up some particular challenges and some opportunities for both patients, doctors and industry alike. On June 17th next month, we'll be addressing this at our virtual conference, bringing together policymakers, leading clinicians and scientists, government, industry and patients. But today, we want to start to explore some of these questions with our panel. With me today, we have Dr. Matt Brown, who is a pain consultant in London. We have Professor Sersha O'Sullivan, who's an expert academic in cannabinoid science. He's won numerous accolades and most recently was named as one of the female pioneers of cannabinoid science and works as an independent science consultant. And Carly Barton, one of the most prominent medical cannabis campaigners in the UK and is the lead at Carly's Amnesty. So let's start off with uh, Matt. How do you think COVID-19 has affected the wider need for cannabis-based medicinal products? I think that's a really interesting question because there's obviously the medical impact of COVID. So the the patients who who get COVID, who then get the the the, the downstream medical effects, a proportion of those patients will become very unwell. A proportion of those patients will then go to intensive care. So there's this new developing um, field of managing COVID patients. But it's also the impact that COVID and the lockdown has had on patients with other conditions. Um, and we know certainly for patients with chronic conditions like um, psychological morbidity, anxiety, depression, with chronic pain, with diabetes, lockdown has had a huge impact on, on their quality of life as well, because a lot of these patients are having to shield. So I think from a cannabis-based medical product perspective, it's raised a number of interesting questions, and I know we're going to address some of these in the podcast. One is, do cannabis-based products have any kind of role to play in, in managing the, the, the COVID and its associated um, sequelae? And also, um, how will cannabis and, and its access and its use for some of those other chronic conditions be affected by by, um, by COVID. So I think the impact's gonna be huge. I can't really predict, to be honest, um, in, in what way that, that impact's gonna manifest um, in say two years time. Okay, so it seems like we've got this group of patients who were um, being prescribed medicinal cannabis more frequently before COVID. So these people with you know, sort of uh, cancer symptoms or inflammatory bowel disease, um, mental health, for example, you may have had that may, that may have trouble getting cannabis, that COVID may affect that. And then we've got this group, you say, of post-ICU patients who've had COVID, who now are struggling to get over the, the psychological aspect of, I, I assume, being on ICU for a couple of weeks, which is pretty terrifying. Is that, is that about right? Absolutely. So being on a ventilator, being critically unwell, 
on an intensive care or high dependency unit um, has takes a huge toll both on on, on the patient's body but also on, on their psychological well-being and, and things like post-traumatic um, stress disorder are very common in post-ITU patients so I think that, that we, we will see this whole new population of kind of COVID survivors um, who may well have conditions that we know um, cannabis-based products may play a role in, in helping um, but also yeah there, there's there's that that whole population who over the, the the months leading up to covid were starting to get improved access to cannabis-based products but all of a sudden you know, outpatient consultations have, have had this grenade thrown thrown at them um, with lockdown and, and patients have been struggling to to get products and, and to, to get reviews um, and support um, to, to use these products. So I think it has, it has had big effects, yeah. So that's an interesting point. So maybe you could just break down for us, Matt, just very briefly for our listeners. Why is it that ICU attendance or spending a time on intensive care, why is that so um, bad for your mental health? What's it like? Oh, I've, ne- I've never been an ITU patient, but um, if you think about um, what being an intensive care patient actually entails. Um, it, 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 it has a lot of interventions that are relatively unpleasant. So you're, you're put on a breathing machine, so you're, you're put off to sleep. You have a breathing tube um, inserted um, in, into the trachea, which is the pipe that leads down to the lungs. In order to deliver um, the drugs that are used to keep the patient to sleep or to keep their blood pressure up um, you, you often have a, a line inserted into one of the big blood vessels either in the neck or your groin you have lines inserted into the one of your arteries probably in the wrist and these lines only have a finite life so they need to be changed repeatedly um, if you think about the process of um, weaning somebody off from mechanical ventilation by its very definition, you need to lighten the sedation the patient's having. So the, the, the patient becomes aware of all of these things that are happening. Um, it, often because the patient's been very unwell, they're, they're confused, they're delirious, and they, they wake up in this very unfamiliar environment. Um, there's lots of stuff going on. Um, th- th- there's lots of people they don't recognize. And it, and it can have a, a really big effect on on. on patients as far as distress and anxiety is concerned and and often these effects last for many many months once a patient has uh, has been discharged in the intensive care unit the fact that the patient's been asleep for for you know up to a couple of weeks has had um, drugs given to them to paralyze them so that they the breathing machine can work means that physically they're very deconditioned as well so when they're trying to then rehabilitate um, often it's very painful, it's very difficult. So you've got both these physical effects and also these psychological effects. Well, it sounds pretty, pretty, pretty terrifying, very, very yeah. traumatic. Um, there's, also, there's also just the, the idea that you, you sort of, there's, a, there's an uncertainty about whether you're going to be okay. I think I've spent yeah. some time on ICU and in long time, long-term hospital uh, specialist units. And there's, I think that probably the most psychologically impacting thing about all of that was sort of twofold it was confronting your own sort of mortality in all of that but also witnessing a lot of suffering and a lot of death around you um and i think that that you know that is going to be that is going to be a we're going to see massive psychological impact of that on patients that have been in that situation for sure 
I mean, I didn't yeah. really appreciate that, Carly. I mean, just from your point of view, Carly, uh, you are you know, a medical cannabis advocate. Um, I don't know if in your experience of, of intensive care, you had any exposure to, to cannabinoids afterwards, or, or if you know of anyone who has, and have they reported any, you know, any benefit from using cannabinoids to get over the, the, the trauma of being in intensive care? Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, myself, it was, you know, it was a, it was a while down the road until I had started utilizing cannabis after that, um, after that experience. But, you know, I had, I was diagnosed with PTSD after that because I was in hospital for a year. Um, so it was quite, uh, quite a significant and traumatic experience over a long period of time. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have, you know, we have patients all the time um, reporting just, just incredible benefits who, who have PTSD for whatever reason. And some of, and some of those patients are, you know, have been, have experienced trauma in hospital situations and um and i just think i just think it's such a, a flexible medicine in that it can really help settle um some of that emotional turmoil um and in and you know i suppose the the other pharmaceutical drugs that are available create a certain amount of emotional stunting that is sort of that goes against the idea of you processing it whereas i don't think cannabis operates in that same way so i think it's it's able to calm you enough to to be able to process those emotions rather than utilizing sort of more antidepressant style medications that then just emotionally stunt you to the point where you don't process um and then you have the you know then you have the issue of, of coming off that medicine and having you know years worth of repressed emotion to deal with on the back of it. So I do, I do think it, I do think it, you know, there's, there's definitely a huge part for cannabis to play in, um, in, in trauma patients, really. I think it's probably worth pointing out at this stage that there is scientific um, evidence to support the use of cannabis based medicines and, and particularly cannabidiol CBD in PTSD and a variety of anxiety disorders like, um, uh, generalized anxiety disorder um, and also the the sleep disturbances that are associated with anxiety and PTSD. These are all, all areas that we have both clinical and preclinical evidence um, to support that um, the fact that cannabis-based medicines work in these areas. I mean it's interesting that certainly after COVID you know it, we've been across the world ventilating or well, in intensive care tens of thousands of patients that we would see uh, if not if not hundreds of thousands by the time covid's over um this may be a, an unexplored um, area of potential therapeutic benefit for cannabinoids and maybe um, a new horizon yeah interestingly there was a, a newspaper article yesterday suggesting that psychedelics like lsd and, and ecstasy could potentially be used for covid related ptsd but I would suggest that we could add cannabis-based medicines and cannabidiol into that as well. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with that. Well, well Sasha, that's where it leads me to, into my next question, um, which is more aimed at you. So as there, there, are, there is lots of research being conducted. Everyone's jumping on sort of the COVID research bandwagon at the moment. Um, how might cannabinoids, aside from the uh, PTSD mental health side that we've just discussed, how could might cannabinoids help in the, the fight against COVID-19? What, what do we know from the science? 
So I think um, there's kind of two aspects that people have been, you know, hypothesizing cannabinoids could be beneficial for. One is on the potential for there being an antiviral effects of cannabinoids. And this is an area where we have, we have less data at either at a, at a preclinical level. So we've got less basic research on this. What we know a lot more about is the anti-inflammatory effects of cannabinoids. Um, and it has been shown in other viral infections that cannabinoids are useful at reducing inflammation and lung damage and, and, and tissue damage in general. And so several people have hypothesized that cannabinoids and particularly CBD could be useful as an anti-inflammatory agent. There's also a, a good scientific line of evidence to support CB2 activation. So um, there is at least one company that's specifically trying to selectively activate the CB2 receptor and use that as an anti-inflammatory um, medicine in, in COVID. So there's lots of people who are, are looking at the potential of these, uh, of these drugs as anti-inflammatory agents, but what really needs to be done is, is, is taking this into a clinical setting because um, what, we're, what we're doing is hypothesizing based on, on preclinical data. We don't have any clinical data yet. Well, I mean, that, that, that is, I completely agree. Matt, what, what might be the clinical impacts of this? You know, if we were to say, hypothesize that there were to be benefit from the using of cannabinoids as a, an anti-inflammatory or an anti-permeability agent, would, would that be of anything, would that be useful clinically? I think um, the, the key thing is always going to be that translation from preclinical and, and animal models through to um, the kind of clinical sphere. One of, one of the, the big issues with you know, if you take a patient on intensive care, um, often by the time they get to intensive care, they've got multi-organ um, failure. It's, it's not just a single system that, that, that is in trouble, and, and, and that's why they're there having that support. And, and traditionally, running high-quality studies of a single intervention on, on critical care has always been very difficult to, to demonstrate benefit because that, that population of patients that's going in has lots of things wrong with them, and they're, they're often a very um, diverse group of patients that are going in. Um, I think for, from, from my perspective, with my pain clinician hat on, if I, if I was a um, cannabis-based med, medicines company, I'd be looking at that kind of low-hanging fruit where we know that, that CBMP can have a, have a clinical effect, and that would be the survivorship group. And as Carly said, it, it, I don't think it necessarily just has to be patients that have been ventilated. It's, it's the patients who have been on, say, a high-dependency unit with a non-invasive ventilation, seeing other patients um, being taken away to ITU and, and deteriorating. And, and so I think the population of COVID survive, survivors, for want of a better word, who will have long-term sequelae is going to be really big. And... I think if we're looking for, looking for the kind of downstream effects of this, that's a population that we should be looking at because we, we've already got some clinical evidence that, that cannabis-based products can be beneficial. Um, so it, it seems, Sersha, that there are, sort of, there are trials ongoing. Um, do you know, has, the, has funding been an issue for these trials? Well, I don't think any trials are ongoing yet. I think people are trying to get funding to initiate trials. And um, funding is always a difficulty, I think, you know, for, for anyone, um, but particularly for cannabis-based medicines where often researchers, um, it, it's not an industry, it's not a, a company who's trying to 
carry out a clinical trial. Mm. And so we're, you know, we're looking to research councils and, and um, uh, health authorities for funding. So that's always a, a difficult time. But I think it does, I think this particular situation does create a, uni a unique opportunity in that we might actually be able to um, initiate clinical trials with cannabis-based medicines quicker than we would have been able to do otherwise. And, and potentially there is going to be more funding available. Um, and I know that the process of getting cl clinical trials initiated is, uh, has been streamlined and uh, has been made quicker at the moment. So we are we do actually have a kind of a unique opportunity to do clinical work with cannabis-based medicines in, in this climate. So it seems that there's overwhelming you know, motivation to do these trials. Um, it's just getting the, the resource to do it. Um, yeah, and, but that's, I think that's the same for, for all medicines, really, isn't it? If you, if you don't have a drug sponsor behind you, it's very difficult to get funding for yeah. research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, NAHR, um, you know, before COVID, put out calls for research and um, said that there was money being fenced for uh, these trials. It'd be interesting to see if that is still the case after, you know, resources will undoubtedly be moved around because of COVID. Yeah, and yeah, I, I was under the impression that that, that that call was still open, that it was a rolling call. So that could be a potential source of funding um, to specifically access that. That, that funding for cannabis-based medicines, but combining it with um, COVID research. I think one of the really interesting things about COVID is that it, it, it seems to be the great leveller in as much as if you're trying to get funding um, from grants for a clinical trial, traditionally you'd be looking at a, a kind of condition-specific um, call or, or indication for, for a medication. And what you find, especially in pain, is that that there are lots of different pain generators and different conditions that might be leading to a pain state. Um, and you, you'll get sort of factionalization of interests and research groups, et cetera, et cetera. One, one thing I was going to say a benefit of COVID, I'm not sure it is a benefit, but the fact that it is so it's, it's global, it's national, it's tangible to everybody. If you, you can build coalitions and collaborations very easily because it's a real kind of touchstone and it affects everybody. So I think that is a kind of positive as far as clinical research and trying to drive um, research forward. Carly, um, to your knowledge, how has, has access been affected by COVID-19 to medicinal cannabis? Um, so I guess I can only really speak to uh, the people who are still accessing on the illicit market because I know that people who had a private prescription before COVID, there hasn't really been any blockages or delays in getting their prescription medication through the pharmaceutical route. But as we know, there's 1.4 million people in the UK who are um, accessing illicitly. And um, it's, been, it, it's been a bit of a mixed bag and a bit of a postcode lottery for people. There have been issues in, in more rural areas, people who have been unable to access. There's been some hoarding of, it's in a sort of toilet, toilet roll style hoarding at the beginning of the lockdown, whereby patients sort of panic bought and that left less in the less in the bank so to speak for um for other patients so people were perhaps buying four ounces instead of one um in 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 and i think i understand why that is because i think they're putting themselves at risk by going to meet a supplier who is who is breaking social distancing and he's going around possibly meeting 20 or more people a day um yeah. 
and so it would it would minimize the risk for anybody who was vulnerable to, to only have to do that trip once and to, to then keep a stock at home um but you know the the impact of that on patients who are only able to afford smaller quantities um at a time who aren't able to, to buy four or five ounces at a time who, who might be buying lower weights um has been significant because people have been have been buying up um, and so there's been patients who have had some really serious and horrible impacts on their health um, as, a, as a result of lack of supply or shortage, mm -hmm. generally speaking. I mean, these, these people going out to obtain cannabis to relieve the, the symptoms of their diseases, these people with multiple sclerosis, fibromyalgia, these people who are already at risk of... Um, suffering undue morbidity from COVID nineteen, assumedly. Yeah, absolutely, and it's you know it's it's been difficult, you know, social distancing when you're doing an illicit trade is is hard because there's not you know there's not uh you know there's no two meter lines and um you know and often you you know you have to get in a car with you know quite often what happens is. Uh, you know, the the florists, as I like to call them, would drive around and, and do several drops in one go. Um, and that would involve the patient get jumping in their car and doing it in their car in the, in the passenger seat. And so there obviously isn't two meters in a, you know, in a Vauxhall Vectra passenger seat. And, and they're sort of, you know, they're carting packaging and, and things around and, and obviously meeting several people within a short space of time to then deliver that. So they're putting themselves at risk, but actually, you know, but, but actually, are, you know, I don't know if they are officially breaking lockdown rules because I would consider it essential um, for, for, for these people who, who rely on these um, medicines to, to live their lives or, you know, to manage their health conditions. Yeah. Um, so COVID has really highlighted how crazy it is that people have to go through those kind of processes to get medications and that they can't just, you know, have it delivered from their local pharmacy like, you know, like any other patient would do. So it's really made that gap between those who are using, having to use the illicit market versus, you know, versus um, traditional medications so much bigger. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's absolutely what we're seeing on the ground. I mean, this is it's entirely in keeping with what I did a study uh, last, a survey last week, um, and which suggests about 80 to 89% of people who are regularly using cannabis to relieve their symptoms have actually broken lockdown to get their medicines. Um, and these people are putting their, their lives at risk, and I guess it's a wider question of risk. Um, we have these institutional processes to pre prevent the, the, the production of medicines that may harm patients, yet in this context, people are literally putting their own lives at risk in order to obtain symptomatic relief from the street. Mm -hmm. Which, Matt, sort of brings us on to my ne next question. Well, when, when COVID is eventually over and things return to normal or a new normal, where can we expect medicinal cannabis to go from here? Because it seems as if medicinal cannabis maybe has filled the space as far as it can do in the current institutional framework. Um, what's next for medicinal cannabis in terms of regulation or study or, or policy, do you think? I think that's a dog, not me. Yeah. I'll stop barking. Um, <laughs> so, Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm going now. to... Yeah. 
I'm going to um, I'm going to I'm going to break that down into my optimistic points and my pessimistic points. So my optimistic points, I think that what COVID has done is it's dropped a nuke um, on the way in which studies are conducted, the way that um, ethical approval is gained. It's sped up processes, it's opened up data collection, um, and I'm hoping that downstream from this, um, the, the way in which we can conduct research will have changed somewhat. It'll become easier, um, it'll, it'll utilize technology more efficiently. Um, I think that the, the, the downside of COVID is that we're sailing into a kind of economic storm as far as both um, the population of the UK, but also um, for, for government fiscal policy and NHS spending. Um, and my, my real concern is that if you've got cannabis products um, and you're trying to get them prescribed on the NHS, the budget to spend on drugs that, for example, for pain are viewed as not being particularly important and not high priority is that that may well hamper um, the, the introduction of these medications longer term. My other concern is for that 1.395 million patients with chronic conditions who can't afford to go to private clinics, who can't afford to spend the many, many thousands of pounds a year for, um, for legitimate cannabis-based products because an awful lot of these people are going to be an awful lot poorer in a year's time, in two years' time because of the economic effects. And I think that, you know, within the... the the cannabis space in the UK, there needs to be a discussion about how variation in provision and how access to high quality um, pharmaceutical grade products, because it's a patient safety issue, can, can happen. Um, so those are, those are my kind of views on, on the future. It's always really hard to predict when, when there's, you know, this hasn't happened before, but, but, but that's my kind of gut feeling. Hmm. And, and Sersha, what's your feeling in terms of um, pilot studies, clinical pilot studies, or uh, further randomised controlled studies, or is there is there room for using real world evidence in this uh, this new landscape? Um, but, yeah, there's always room for that, but I think that at least within the UK, um, Nice will continue to make their recommendations based on randomised controlled trials. I. I can't see that changing in the short term so i think uh, maybe in the longer term people will come around to alternative ways of of kind of um analyzing evidence but i think at the moment that's the the, the primary way that nice will continue to do so and i think that um we will continue to generate randomized control evidence um with cannabis-based medicines and if you look at clinicaltrials.gov or any other clinical trial registry, you'll see that there is an awful lot of research going on. Um, and, you know, and a lot of these are, are large phase three trials that, that could change guidelines and recommendations. So, you know, I like to stay uh, optimistic that, you know, in the short to medium term, the landscape for cannabis-based medicines could change and the range of indications for which cannabis-based medicines are recommended could change. And, and lastly, Carly, um, the, the landscape is changing and there are lots of uses, it seems, among people who are using it for all sorts of um, symptomatic reliefs in the community. Where do you think the most need is? Um, I, I, I don't know that there's an easy answer to that question. Um, 
I think I think that the need is you know this cannabis space and its uses is just it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we understand more about this plant and as people are applying it in different ways and learning about how to manage their symptoms with different strains with different consumption methods with different you know with different conditions and I think that's that scope is only just going to continue to sort of get bigger and bigger and we're going to see more um, uses for, for this medicine across the board so I don't know that there is um, that there is a condition necessarily that's got the biggest need I think at the moment what we need to do is focus on um, as Matt says we've got you know a, a big economic downturn um, that has begun already and is going to continue and I think in terms of advocacy what we need to do is focus on those patients who are unable to sustain a private prescription right. focus on reducing stigma and reducing the likelihood <laughs> of them, those patients being criminalized um, in the meantime if they are for you know if they are getting symptomatic relief from either cultivation or from strains that are available illicitly. Um, any, any comment there Matt? Yeah, I think when you, when you look for, from a pain viewpoint, when you look at patients who are experiencing chronic pain, that they often the impact on their functional levels, their ability to work. Um, th these are not people with with pots of cash to spend, um, and there's a huge variation in provision and service across the UK. Um, one of the big issues from our perspective as pain doctors is because we're also anaesthetists, we've all been redeployed by and large managing the covid emergency so pain clinic provision has dropped off a cliff in the uk hopefully that'll come back but i know personally that there are a huge number of chronic pain patients who aren't getting the support they need at the moment they're trying to self-manage it's very very hard and we need to be mindful of of how how we get the support to these patients um in a safe and effective way Love it. Well, thanks for that. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I, um, I do think that actually pain is one of the areas that we, we critically need better evidence in um, yeah. because it's also the area in which we know cannabinoids can work. And it's also yeah. one of the, the largest patient numbers. If you, if you think about the, the, the number of patients who are using cannabis-based medicines, it's yeah. often pain, pain sufferers. And I think mm -hmm we need to do better and different trials. And actually what you said earlier, Matt, about using technology more, I yep. think that one of the things that we need to do differently in, in cannabis-based medicine pain trials is continuous monitoring of pain. Yep. You know, taking a snapshot of your pain at the beginning and the end of a, of a randomized controlled trial is not always the best way to judge how well your pain has been managed over the course of that trial or, you know, what other... Um, endpoints have been have been improved by by the medication. Yeah. So I think using technology in the future could be a really good way to assess pain better with cannabis-based medicines. Totally, that's a whole different podcast. To be honest, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's such a fascinating area that I totally agree. Yeah, grand. Well, I guess that brings us nicely to a close. Uh, Dr. Matt Brown, Professor Sasha O'Sullivan, and Carly Barton, thank you very much for your time. Um, so on the 17th of June next month, we will be addressing all of these issues and exploring them further in now, in what now and what next for medicinal cannabis in the UK. We'll be bringing together leading clinicians, scientists, government, policymakers, and industry to address these and to set out the goals of the landscape over the next 12 months. But in the meantime, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>